If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. On Monday, April 25th, I wrote a piece in my blog about Netflix and uh, the problems that they are undergoing. And it led me to an idea, an idea for a podcast. And that is the evolution of show business. Because certain forms of entertainment that at one point are so popular and are just cash cows all of a sudden go away. And so I thought I would talk about the entertainment industry pretty much from the beginning of the last century and how it has evolved and how we see what happened in the past might help us to predict what might happen in the future. So that's what we're going to do this week on Hollywood and Levine. Like I said, we're going to start around 1900 and the big form of entertainment in the United States was vaudeville. And vaudeville, quite simply, was a variety show. It was a traveling variety show that would have seven or eight different acts. It would have a comedian. It would have a singer. It would have dancers. It would have a dog act. It would have acrobats, that sort of thing. And uh, and they were very popular. Like I said, they would just kind of bicycle around the country and wherever you were, there was a, a vaudeville show and people like Jack Benny and Burnson Allen and others who started in that line of work would uh, come to Kalamazoo or wherever you were and they did their shows and vaudeville was quite the thing in the early part of the 20th century. And then came movies. And originally, you know, they were just Nickelodeons. They were just kind of these curiosity pieces. But eventually, they started making longer, even full-length movies. Now, these were silent movies, but still, there was quite a novelty. And the fact that you could see it in any town made the idea of movies, of going to movies, very popular. So what effect did that have on vaudeville? Well, it pretty much killed it. Vaudeville really came to not a screeching halt. It was sort of a slow death, but movies pretty much put the end 
to vaudeville. Radio came along around the same time, around the early 1920s. And the interesting thing about radio, they weren't so much in competition with movies, but they were in competition with the music industry and big bands and record companies and music publishers. And at the time, it was thought that if you played a record of yours on a radio station, then people were not going to buy it. They would rather just listen to it for free. And so the record industry went on strike and basically banned all records from radio stations. And this led radio stations to be more creative and eventually start creating programs which turned into networks. And you had long-running serials like Gunsmoke and Superman and The Lone Ranger, yada, yada, yada. That started networks like CBS and NBC NBC actually had two networks, the red and the blue, and they split off one of those, turned into ABC. But that's how you had the emergence of networks so that the Jack Benny show could be heard all across the country. And eventually, I don't know exactly how this happened, but eventually the record companies gave in and said, okay, for a limited time, for only a few hours, you can play records. And here's what they found out. They sold records when they were on the radio. People heard new music and said, I like that song. I want it. I'm going to go out and buy it. So now... You had these record companies pleading the radio stations to play their records, whereas a few years before, they, they had banned the stations from playing their records. So this kind of went on through the 30s and the 40s. You had the war in the 40s, which kind of halted the development of television. And at the end of World War II... Television started to emerge, and by mid-century, you had television stations, and you had these networks, CBS and NBC and even ABC, owning stations and deciding, well, this is an emerging field, Uh, this is the future, so let's take our shows that were on the radio and do televised versions because the more shows we have on TV, well, the more people are actually going to go out and buy television sets. And in the early 50s, you would have shows that were both on the radio and on television. Yeah, shows like uh, Armis Brooks, where there would be the weekly TV show and also the weekly radio show. Shows like Amos and Andy, were on for years on the radio, even after the TV show had 
premiered and ended and been in syndication. The radio show on CBS lasted until the early 1960s. You don't think of old-time radio as going into the 1960s, but it did. Okay, so television emerges, and now radio is freaked out because all of a sudden their main form of programming all of the shows like Burns and Allen and uh, The Shadow and Lone Ranger and all of these various shows were now going over to television. So what were they going to do? And again, you have to adapt. And they did. And they saw that there was a lot of money in listeners in local programming. You didn't need a network. You could be local. And so these stations started playing hit records of the day, and they started getting huge ratings, and they started making a lot of money. And as the teenage generation emerged, and as teenagers had their own cars that had radios in them, and as transistor radios became available, all of a sudden, the owners of radio stations are realizing, you know what? There's a lot of money if we cater to young people. So that's what they did. And that was the emergence of rock and roll. And you had people like Elvis Presley coming on the scene to really jumpstart the whole process. And radio did just fine. How about the movie industry? Well, the movie industry was certainly threatened by television. But what were they going to do about it? They decided, you know what? Uh, we could actually make some money by selling our library to TV stations. Because back in the 30s and 40s, they would make a movie, they would release it, and it would be out for two months, four months, whatever. And then after it was set aside, you never heard about it again. It just kind of disappeared because there were only so many theaters and there was always new movies coming up. So what are you going to do with all of this? So there were like libraries of all of these movies that otherwise would be forgotten. And the studios figured we can sell these to the TV stations because the TV stations need content. They have to fill all those hours of the day, let them fill it with movies. So they did. And most of the local TV stations in the 50s spent a lot of time airing movies. And of course, what that did was generate more interest in movies. You know, you saw all these uh, Bogey and Bacall movies and, you know, it kind of rekindled your love for film and it sent people to the theater to go watch movies again. Um, television did not kill the movie industry. And uh, it's interesting, the movie industry, early on when television was really in its infancy, they were figuring, well, what can we do to compete? What can we do that they can't do on television? And so they tried all of these gimmicks like 3D and smell-o-vision 
and uh, these outrageous claims that uh, a movie is going to be so scary that a registered nurse has to be on hand for every showing, bullshit stuff like this, Cinerama came along in the early 60s. Anything they could do to get people to go to the movies, which people still did. And television in the 50s and 60s flourished. The movie industry flourished. Television was also helped by the fact that, you know, in the late 50s, beginning in the late 50s, there was color television. So that really kind of kicked in in the 60s where everybody was getting color television. That was really quite the novelty. Okay, what's up next? Cable. Usually it is some technological innovation which upsets the whole apple cart. And in this case, it was cable. So now with cable... People were able to get more than just the local over-the-air channels. And cable in its infancy had public access shows and all kinds of nonsense. They were looking for ways to fill. And one of the ideas that a number of these uh, providers came up with, certainly one in Los Angeles, was the idea of showing first-run movies without commercials, seeing the movies uncut. Because back in those days, let's say uh, you had a big movie in the theater in 1959, Pillow Talk with Doris Day and Rock Hudson. So it's a big movie, and the studio makes all its money from the theatrical release. And then eventually, a couple of years later, they sell it to one of the networks and they will put it on their Sunday night movie. And so it's the first time you can actually see Pillow Talk on TV. But of course, it is cut up and there are commercials. And once it goes from the network, it goes into syndication and it is hacked up even more. But When you had, it was called the Z Channel in L.A., the chance to actually see a movie uncut, uncensored, no commercials all the way through, and you had to pay $4 a month, something like that, for this service. Well, that became uh, a moneymaker for the studios, and there were still... You know, such a small percentage of people who were doing this and the movies that they were showing were not the ones that were in the theaters. They were movies that were in theaters like three to six months before. So, again, it was another revenue stream for the studios. And early on, it was not much of a threat for the networks because they still pretty much commanded 80-90% of the audience. The networks, there were three of them, uh, suddenly became four when the Fox network came along and that helped split up things as well. The idea of 
first-run movies on cable, you figured it was only a matter of time before a national concern picks up on this. And sure enough, you had HBO. They came along, along with Showtime and Cinemax and some other services, and they were seriously competing with the networks, especially when they decided, well, let's have our own original programming. And I remember at one point my partner David Isaacs and I went in and met with Michael Fuchs, who was the head of HBO. This was like 1981, I believe. And he said to us, okay, come up with a show, but if this is a show that can be done on a network, on a broadcast network, we don't want it. So they were looking for interesting, different shows. And the idea being, of course, well, what happens when one of these hits and suddenly people are subscribing to HBO because that's the only place they can see this show that everybody is talking about? And that happened with a little show called The Sopranos. So now the cable networks were starting to get a foothold and other cable networks were being formed and they were putting on original programming. So you had USA Network and you had Lifetime and Bravo and A&E. So there were all of these different networks. ESPN came along, said, well, let's do sports on cable. And when they started, oh my God, other than Sports Center at night, they had like, you know, beer league softball and Australian rules football, just the most insane, insipid sports you could possibly think of, but they had to fill all of that time. And they knew, get a foothold, okay? Get in there, be first, be the one that people think of. So all of these cable channels, they were doing really well. And for the networks, they figure, well, okay, uh, we better get in on this. And so they went out and bought out a lot of these networks. The USA Network is owned by essentially NBC. So that was kind of rolling along. And in terms of movies, with the advent of laser discs and Betamax and DVD players, especially DVDs, people could buy movies. And the studios figured, okay, here is a huge money stream. We'll put all of our library out on DVDs and sell them. I remember at the time this became a huge issue during a Writers Guild strike. I think it was around 1980-81 because there was the question of, okay, how do writers get in on this? And it was a, an ugly fight because they're going, well, uh, the, we project the future to be this, this, and this, and writers want a piece of it, and studios are saying, oh, it's never going to last, and uh, 
months and months we were out. And I think we ended up getting basically nothing. But that was going to be the future of the industry. It was going to be DVDs. And then Blockbuster and a couple other places came along and said, well, you know, people don't necessarily want to buy a movie because once they see it once, they're not going to be watching it every other week. Why don't we rent movies? And that began the whole movie rental uh, craze, Blockbuster and a lot of others. And... You know, it made an awful lot of money for a a good long time. And you figure, okay, this is the future. But then technology and streaming came along. And once Netflix, which originally was a service that you could rent movies, you could do it through the mail... Well, eventually, they found out that you could stream this content and people would not have to wait a day or two and get the DVD and put it in their DVD player and all. It's like, wait, it's just it's just right here. I just turn on Netflix and I just click on the movie and there it is. And so streaming came along and Netflix was really the 800 pound gorilla. And of course, whenever somebody in show business is successful, then everybody else decides, oh, we better get into the act too. And before too long, there's Hulu, there's Disney Plus, there's Apple TV, there's HBO Max, there's Peacock, there's Paramount Plus, uh, Criterion, there's like a million of these streaming channels and it's killing the broadcast networks. It's just killing ABC, CBS, NBC. Is the CW still around? Yeah, I guess it is still around. There's, you know, Marvel shows, but uh, all of this stuff between all of the cable channels that you can watch where you can see cooking shows 24 hours a day and you can see music shows and it's everybody's niche is satisfied by some channel. So the networks all of a sudden, you know, are getting a fraction of what they used to get before. And they made their money off of advertising and ratings. Well, if you don't, get the ratings, you don't get the advertising. One of the things that networks were able to do uh, for a long time, networks were not allowed to own shows. They figured it was a monopoly. But when cable came along, they said, we have to be able to compete. Please at least let us own our own shows. Now, we're not just going to put all of our shows on the air because we understand that it's all about ratings and so we're we're still going to use everybody else and of course they didn't of course they 
used all their own shows. And if you watch ABC, 90% of the product on ABC is an ABC or a Disney show. And the same thing with NBC and the same thing with, with ABC. It's like, you know, who are you kidding with all of that? So streamers, it looked to be a couple of years ago that this was absolutely the boomtown situation. Netflix was spending literally billions of dollars on content, making $500 million deals with Shonda Rhimes and other top showrunners. And one of the things that Netflix did, which again was a game changer, was when they had an original show called House of Cards with Kevin Spacey, they decided instead of doling out an episode a week, we're going to put all 13 up right now. You can just watch all 13 if you want. And people started binge watching because they could see a whole season in three days and they could also watch their favorite old shows you know, uh, seven, eight episodes at a time if they want. They want to watch The West Wing. They want to watch Cheers. They want to watch the Andy Griffith show. They want to watch 30 Rock, whatever it is. They can just gorge on television. That was a game changer as well. So streaming up until three weeks ago or two weeks ago, uh, seemed to be the absolute future of television. There was no ceiling. The moon, the stars, you could go past everything with streaming. And suddenly word came down that uh, Netflix dropped 200,000 viewers. That never happened before they always just gained subscribers. And especially over the last couple of years with the pandemic, well, more and more people signed on for Netflix. Now that the pandemic hopefully is starting to slowly fade, people want to get out. They've been locked in their house for two years they don't want to sit around and and binge watch uh, 47 episodes of The Rockford File. Uh, they want to do stuff. And all of a sudden, between the competition, all of the Hulus and everyone else out there, and they're all coming up with their own good shows. Apple has Ted Lasso and, uh, you know, there's really one or two very excellent shows on each and every one of these services. Well, all of a sudden, Netflix, they found their stock dropping 35%. 35%. I mean, that is a major crash. And the problem they face is, okay, how do you reverse things? Well, 
one way, of course, is since you've lost so much money, is stop spending so much money. But there's a problem with that. And the problem is people come to you because you have a lot of content. If you don't have any more content, and it's not just content, it has to be good content, uh, they're going to leave. They're going to leave. Hulu has all of the great shows now. Or, uh, you know, Peacock has some great shows. One thing about a younger audience, they have no allegiance. They don't give a shit. You know, for baby boomers, you used to be a, a CBS family or an NBC family. And you would generally watch the CBS shows. And you would watch the news on CBS with Walter Cronkite. Or you're an NBC family and you watched Huntley Brinkley uh, every night for your news. As far as these kids are concerned, they give a shit whether a show is on Channel 2 or Channel 982. They're not even watching on television. You know, again, technology. They're watching on tablets. They're watching on their phones. They don't care. All they care about is the content. And if the content isn't there, then they have no allegiance to Netflix. They'll go somewhere else. They'll go where their favorite shows are, and they'll take their twelve ninety-five a month with them. So you can't cut down on content. What else can you do? Well, in the case of uh, Netflix, they had not had a tier where they showed commercials. That was one of the great things about Netflix was, you know, uh, other services, you pay one fee for commercials and you pay a higher fee if you want no commercials. But Netflix, it was just one fee. Well, uh, they're going to go back and rethink the idea of not having commercials. So they're probably going to try doing that. Is that going to attract uh, more viewers? I don't think so. And then the other thing is uh, they claim that there's like 100 million people who who have shared passwords. So they're going to clamp down on that. Well, again... How many people are going to go, you know what? Part of the deal for me with Netflix was that I was able to share my password with uh, with my family in Boston. And if I can't do that, screw it. I don't want Netflix anymore. So you're going to have more defections as a result of that. So I don't really know at this point what the answer is. I, I guess the answer is come up with the next great Sopranos, uh, good luck with that, okay? If you can pull that off, then fine. That's pulling an inside straight. But here's the interesting thing. I've seen a number of articles since the collapse of, uh, of Netflix. And by the way, I also didn't bother getting into CNN Plus, which premiered like about a month ago, and already the plug is pulled on that thing after like one month. So, yeah, that was a a boondoggle. Uh, But here's the thing. A a lot of articles are coming out now 
going, well, Netflix crashed 35% and Roku is down and Hulu is down and Warner Brothers is down. Um, Maybe streaming is not the answer. Maybe uh, it's the dot-com industry again where that bubble exploded. And all of a sudden these mega corporations who have spent billions on, you know, their streaming services are going to go, hmm, is this just a white elephant? Is this thing coming to an end? And there's always the looming issue of what new technology is on the horizon. Are people going to be watching holograms in five years? And if so, once they can see things in 3D in their living room, all of a sudden two-dimensional television, no matter how many pixels, is not going to be interesting to them. Who knows? Everyone thought three weeks ago it was streaming. But as we see, the industry evolves. And as it does, there are things that go away. You know, vaudeville and silent movies and smell-o-vision and blockbuster and Betamax. Will streaming survive this and still be the future of television or will it be the next Betamax? And on that note... uh, We wrap it up for this week in Hollywood and Levine. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, to John Wolfert, to Bruce and Jason Miller. If you have any thoughts on this or anything, you can email me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. I am also on Twitter at Ken Levine. And I am on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine, where I showcase some of my cartoons and uh, invite you to follow me on that, sign up, whatever. And come back next week. We'll have more of Hollywood and Levine.